Welcome to Machiavelli on the Ivory Tower. Our guest today is Dr. Rachel Whitlark, who is an associate professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Rachel, we're so thrilled to have you with us here today, and thank you for making the time. It is delightful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel, let me start with the first question about a book that you had out in 2021 with Cornell University Press called All Options on the Table. Can you just tell uh, the, the listeners who are not familiar with your book, who haven't had a chance to read it yet, what's the story with the book and what are the questions that you asked and answered? Sure, sure, sure. So um, so the book seeks to understand um, something that is a little bit strange, a little bit puzzling in the world of international politics, which is that sometimes we observe um, one state use military force of some variety to try and stop another country that is in the process of trying to develop nuclear weapons. Um, to put that in political yeah. science speak, if you will, for a, for a minute, it's about um, understanding and explaining the variation that we see in the use of preventive military force as a counterproliferation strategy. So why do we see the use of force as a counterproliferation strategy sometimes, but other times not? Um, and the way I came to this uh, question, this book, this puzzle, this book, um, it actually started uh, from world events. So I was observing things in 2002, 2003, um, and you'll remember that um, one of the things that happened in that period was that the United States went to war in Iraq, ostensibly because of Saddam Hussein's pursuit of nuclear weapons. Um, and, you know, that was a thing, and uh, we're still thinking through the ramifications of it today. Um, but at least on one level, it struck me as puzzling. Um, because the previous year, in 2002, the international community, the United States, had learned that Iran um, was pursuing an illicit nuclear uh, weapons program, and the United States did not go to war in Iran. And I thought, okay, that's kind of odd, right? These are seemingly similar countries, seemingly similar cases, big Middle Eastern, uh, you know, countries with hostility to the U.S. interests, allies, etc., we go to war in one and not the other. And I was like, I don't, I don't know, understand. I don't know what to make of that because they seem very similar and we see two very different things happen. Fast forward, if you will, a little bit uh, to 2007 and history kind of repeats. Um, in the fall of 20, 2007, the um, Israelis uh, attack what we now know was a secret Syrian nuclear reactor that was part of a developing Syrian nuclear weapons program. And again, I was kind of like scratching my head. This is strange because the Israelis since 2002 had been shouting from the rooftops about the dangers that the Iranian nuclear program posed to them existentially, to the U.S., to the international community, et cetera. And again, like seemingly similar things, seemingly analogous cases. Iran and Syria are both large Middle Eastern uh, non-democracies, autocracies, whatever you want to call it, hostile to the Israelis and their interests in the region, et cetera. Um, and yet the Israelis use preventive military force in one case, the Syrian case, but not against um, the Iranians in the other case. And so I was like, what is going on here? Ultimately, this is the puzzle. These are the kinds of ex uh, cases, kinds of things that I try to explain um, in this book. And the argument that I think we're going to get into as time goes on, um, the answer to the question, what explains this variation in the use of force um, as a counterproliferation strategy over time, um, I argue that we have to understand the leaders. 
atop the state apparatus. So it's not just enough to talk about the US or the Israelis, but we got to break it down by presidential or prime ministerial administration to understand the leaders atop the state apparatus, how they think about nuclear weapons, what their beliefs are about the role nuclear weapons play or don't in international politics. And it's through understanding those beliefs, we can understand individual leaders' proclivities to the consideration and use of military force um, or not. Rachel, this is fascinating. I want to pick up on the last point that you just made, which has to do with your argument and your analysis. You know, you're really focused, as you just said, on decision makers, um, their prior beliefs, and the ways that they influence their decisions about proliferation challenges once they get into office. Um, in a lot of ways, as I was reading your book, it struck me that this, you know, so to speak, leader-centric model fits in really neatly with a bigger resurgence of interest in IR scholarship in you know, the first image or this focus on the individual. So I'd love to hear, you know, you talk about this a bit in your book, but from your perspective, what kind of explains first that resurgence of interest? And then I guess more specifically from your own perspective as a scholar, like what led you to make the individual the unit of analysis for your book? Sure. So, so first, first question first, like how did we get here as a field, I guess? Um, and to my mind, it's not any one thing, any one particular development. Um, my sense of the nature and evolution of a field like political science and international relations within it is that there are ebbs and flows over time and the pendulum sort of shifts uh, in one direction and then it shifts in the other direction. And that is both about the kinds of questions that people are asking, the types of arguments that they are advancing as the answers to some of those questions, um, the methodological uh, preferences or uh, uh, counter preferences that people might have. So I think if we look um, maybe evolutionarily at the development and the, and the evolution of the discipline over time, we can sort of see shifts in priorities and preferences and the tools that people are bringing to bear, um, you know, not just now, but sort of if we take the long view. So I think I kind of understand the return, the resurgence to a focus on leaders, the first image. First of all, it's a return, right? Because we used to do this all the time um, earlier in the scholarship, and then I we forgot and it fell out of favor, we didn't forget. We we decided to think about other things um, and other, other kinds of questions, other kinds of methodological advancements meant that the field moved elsewhere um, to you know uh, uh, more easily quantifiable, perhaps more readily quantifiable um, data sources and questions and answers, et cetera. Um, and so our return now is, is I think both a reflection of where we have been previously, maybe a focus, some might say over focus on some of the systemic level grand theory type things that people used to be working on um, and a return to more mid-range theory problem-driven or question-driven research. Um, and I also think there's a general trend towards explaining and exploring what people are terming the micro-foundations uh, uh, within the literature. So understanding sort of the lower level um, factors that might um, undergird or underlie uh, some of the phenomenon that we are interested in. So you might think, you know, the discipline at the moment is really focusing on understanding 
um, group decision making and understanding the individual level aggregation that goes into group decision making. Um, so I think that's a kind of long winded answer to say, you know, I understand this resurgence of um, leader focused literature in the nuclear scholarship, but more broadly within international relations and in uh, political science within that larger evolution. Um, the second thing you asked, Sarah, was how how I got here, um, in particular, as the argument that I advance in this book. And I'd love to tell you that I came in ex ante with the notion that this was all going to be a story about leaders, um, but that would be disingenuous, um, because the truth is I hypothesized a bunch of other stuff was going on first. Um, and largely those other hypotheses now show up as alternative explanations. Um, but I went into this uh, with priors that told me maybe it was a bureaucratic politics story, or maybe it was a structural story um, about the distribution of power, for example, within international politics. And only after the evidence was overwhelmingly not supporting any of those things, uh, did I sort of come around to the idea that um, there is actually a leader-driven uh, focus. That's great, Rachel. I mean, so I find this so fascinating because, you know, wanting to ask and answer a question is one thing, but then actually being able to do that with the data that you have available is sure. different. Um, I know in my own scholarship, you know, I find it to be exciting and challenging to look at how leaders think and feel, especially in retrospect. So I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of how you went about establishing some of those prior beliefs of the leaders on whom you focus and maybe what you found, you know, not just rewarding, but also difficult about doing that kind of work, particularly um, from an historical perspective, you know, using the archives to do that. Sure, sure. So I think you captured it brilliantly, Sarah, right? It's both um, exciting and challenging or rewarding and frustrating, however we might want to uh, sort of sort of uh, capture the dichotomy. Um, so I think the way I would start would be to say that probably the most important thing for me um, to be able to establish the causal role of leaders and their beliefs in this book um, is to be able to temporally disaggregate the leader's beliefs from the decision-making environment of the uh, case itself. Um, which is a fancy way of saying, I want to be able to identify and define and code the leader's beliefs about these important nuclear matters as early as I possibly can in their lives as individuals, ideally decades before they even think about becoming president of the United States, saying nothing of actually becoming president or prime minister or what have you. Um, and the reason for this is because if I sold you a story that defined and coded these independent variables, these beliefs, right, these causal factors within the same time frame as the decision making process of what to do against the Chinese nuclear program or what to do against the North Korean nuclear program, if that was all happening in the same context, you know, you could rightly come to me and say, well, how do I know this isn't just words, right, that leaders aren't using, you know, what you're calling beliefs instrumentally as their ability, as their way, their means of selling their desired policy outcome, right? I couldn't disentangle the outcome from the thing that I'm telling you is related to uh, what's driving the process. Um, so I went back as far as I could with each individual that I explore in this book to their youth, 
right, to their formative experiences, uh, maybe in military service or previous political office or all of the above, depending on the individual, um, to try to figure out as early as I could, what did they think about international politics? When did they first start thinking about nuclear issues broadly, if ever? Um, and what did they start to think about the role that nuclear weapons play in international politics for good, for ill, everything under the sun? Um, and so to, to put some like proper nouns on this stuff, you know, I went back um, into the, each of the presidential archives in the US context um, and look at things like John F. Kennedy's uh, collegiate thesis, right? The notes that he took when he was a journalist um, immediately after World War II. Um, the letters that George H.W. Bush wrote home to his family when he was a serviceman um, in World War II to, to see if I can find evidence of how they thought about the world and especially, you know, once the advent of nuclear weapons happens, um, uh, what role nuclear weapons might play in international politics. So I take the long view, right, um, and try and build a really long historical timeline to the extent that I can, um, doing my best to separate those beliefs um, and the individual who holds them uh, from what they're actually doing once they're the executive in charge of the decision-making process. Um, and that sounds great, maybe, um, but it comes with a bunch of challenges. So on the great, fabulous, fascinating side, you know, as anybody who has ever worked in an archive knows, um, it's a giant treasure hunt. You come upon stuff that is just wild and totally outside of the scope of what it is you are meant to be looking for. Right. So in the Kennedy archive, you know, there are boxes and folders that have, you know, the lists of gifts that the Kennedys received when they got married, as well as all of the fancy dignitaries who were giving them those gifts. Um, in the George H.W. Bush library, there's a ticket stub. You know, that whole family is a huge baseball fan. And there are ticket stubs from a mid-century World Series that he attended and the paltry amount of money this ticket costs compared to what those tickets go for in this day and age. I mean, it was just, it was just mind blowing. Pictures, letters, memorabilia, you know, arcana, like world history. And if you're, you know, a nerd about this stuff, like all of us are, you could spend your life digging through a whole bunch of amazing, fascinating uh, pieces of world history that most people don't even know exists, let alone actually get to look at and hold and leaf through. Um, and that's wonderful, but it also means you could really quickly spend a lot of time not doing what you're meant to be doing, which is, you know, writing your dissertation or writing your book or what have you. So this is sort of the duality of this is a fascinating way to approach research, spending time in archives. Um, and we are, especially in the United States, we have this amazing gift that archives exist, that we are able under most circumstances to go in and explore, you know, our history. And obviously other countries have, have to a certain degree, similar institutions to, to, that we get to avail ourselves of, which is amazing. Um, but you can go down the wormhole really quickly and spend days, weeks, months, you know, distracted, frankly, um, from what you're meant to be doing. Um, you know, I would be remiss to not also note that there's a pragmatic element to thinking about doing archival research because it sounds cool, maybe, and fascinating. It's also slow. Um, 
And in a world where writing a dissertation, getting a PhD or being an academic um, has real time pressures, right? It's a very different beast uh, to go and do archival work, whether in presidential archives or another kind of field work where you're doing a deep dive um, that is you know, quite research and labor intense. Um, it's a very different model from taking an off the shelf data set that you can download, manipulate um, to very good ends, right? Useful ends, different questions, different types of research. These things are different and they involve trade-offs and people should, should think about them um, um, before you know, diving in. That's extremely interesting, Rachel. I do wanna come back to this notion of taking the long view, as you called it, on leaders' beliefs. So going all the way back, perhaps to their youth, uh, establishing those beliefs, coding them, and then later showing their causal relevance for the kinds of decisions that you look at. And I'm just curious whether that does not presuppose or require a certain continuity or stability in those nuclear beliefs. I mean, what do you do if you analyze a leader uh, who's experienced considerable nuclear learning, whose views on nuclear weapons, on nuclear threats changed over the course of his lifetime? Or is that rather rare um, as far as your research shows? Sure, sure. So I don't think there's anything in my argument that requires uh, consistency of beliefs over time. Um, and I'm you know, intellectually quite amenable to the notion that people can learn, especially over a long period of time, um, and that beliefs, uh, views about important topics like nuclear weapons can change over time. Um, and yet, I happen to explore a variety of individuals whose beliefs remain reasonably consistent um, over time. Um, and so that makes the task of tracing the formation of these beliefs through a pre-presidential period or a pre-executive period through to the executive office. Um, it makes that task a bit uh, less complicated in, in as much as the beliefs stay consistent, largely so over time. But I will say that I do uh, encounter an example and talk through in the book um, what I describe as an evolution in George W. Bush, so Bush 43's um, beliefs. And I won't go as far as to say that they dramatically change um, in time zero to time one or time one to time two, um, but I would say that they evolve um, and they evolve primarily because of the 9-11 um, experience. So, um, and of course, it's worth noting, by the way, that George W. Bush is a harder president to work with because he has, uh, especially to someone real, like uh, I don't know, George H.W. Bush, his father, or John F. Kennedy, who had a long, relatively speaking, pre-presidential career, you know, someone like George W. Bush has a, a shorter, relevant pre-presidential career, and what he had was not terribly relevant for foreign affairs. Um, but nevertheless, what we can glean uh, from what we know currently about his pre-presidential uh, experience and his worldviews, his pre-presidential views, you know, he seemed to lack confidence um, in deterrence in the post-Cold War environment. So sort of the environment in which, you know, he's, he's um, uh, growing up and then eventually running for presidential office. Um, you know, he talked about, especially on the campaign trail, but previously, you know, a desire to build uh, ballistic missile defense right, as one way to help augment the U.S.'s uh, insufficient capability to deter especially rogue states 
from threatening the United States. Um, so that means one, that he was a little bit lacking in confidence on the deterrence front, um, but also two, that he was focused on state-based threats. And you sort of see this all over, you know, his uh, earlier um, record, some of the campaign materials that he and his team um, would put out before entering into presidential office, um, and even in their uh, tenure before 9-11. Right. So their focus was really on state uh, based threats, um, including Iraq. 9-11, I would say uh, the shock of 9-11 has the experience of hardening his views, making George W. Bush even less confident in containing and deterring certain actors like rogue states in international politics. And adding something that I think wasn't there before, which was the focus on terrorism and terrorism plus rogue states plus WMDs, right? Which, of course, we can understand in what happens eventually with uh, the war in Iraq. Um, so this is not a sea change, I think, in his uh, beliefs, but, you know, an evolution. He was thinking about Iraq way before he got into presidential office. But the nature of the threat that Iraq poses, still a rogue state, but now a rogue state that potentially has the WMD terrorism connection um, and the WMD potential, uh, the threat sort of became a broader, more multifaceted um, 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 uh, consideration um, in the post 9-11 um, environment. And of course, we can understand you know, the direction that the administration is going to take doing preemption, or if you want to uh, think of it that way, at least to use their terminology, um, consequently in light of that evolution. That's super interesting. And of course, sort of intuitively, it makes sense that certain watershed moments would have an impact on those prior beliefs. And it, it really makes me think, I mean, I don't know whether you want to do further scholarship in this direction, but I guess you have your work cut out for you because the extent to which the war in Ukraine with its many nuclear dimensions might have an impact on various uh, world leaders' views of, of, of the nuclear threat. I think there's going to be a lot to, to study for scholars like you. Um, but that's just as a side note. I did want to come back to what you noted before, that you went into writing this book not with uh, the idea that this is going to be a book about leaders, that mm -hmm. you put certain alternative explanations for the outcomes. You hinted at them briefly, but can you flesh out a little bit what alternative explanations you considered and why you found those to be less convincing? Sure. So um, I started both in this project and in terms of the alternative expl explanations that are consistent across all of the chapters of the book, um, focusing on what we might call structural um, explanations. And there's a variety of different um, types of those explanations that I explore in the book. But one of them is, you know, this idea that as one state observes a challenger state, an enemy state, an adversary state, trying to augment their capabilities in this instance through the acquisition of nuclear weapons, um, that first state will try to use military force to stop them. Um, and the fact that that happens sometimes and other times not means we need something else than just that basic baseline understanding of how uh, countries might interact in, in international politics. Um, and so then I thought, okay, well, maybe it's something about the relative power distributions between states, right? Something about the dyad state one, state two, the nature of the, the power distribution, how strong or weak, you know, the relative capability uh, distribution might be. Um, so we might think that 
you know, only, um, how do I want to say this? Only when a strong state faces a comparatively weak state who is trying to acquire nuclear weapons and, you know, sort of close the power gap, the power asymmetry. Maybe that's the type, that's the situation where we're going to see, or we should expect to see um, the use of military force. But again, that's that's problematic. Um, and I would point to the Israel chapter in the book. You know, today we often think about Israel as the strong, dominant military power, regional power in the Middle East. But in the 1980s, when Israel was facing, you know, the Iraqi nuclear program, the Pakistani nuclear program, and then even into the 2000s when they were facing um, a Syrian nuclear program, you know, by a number of metrics that we might use to think about relative power capabilities, whether it's the territorial size of Israel vis-a-vis -vis the adversaries, um, the, the uh, population size, et cetera, et cetera. You know, most metrics that we would think about would consider Israel to actually be the strong, the weak state, not the strong state, right? So in these cases, you've got a weaker state that has a stronger adversary who stands to actually get even stronger, like exacerbating that power asymmetry. Um, and then is thinking about using military force. By the way, they don't always use military force, right? We don't know that the Israelis, um, or we didn't never observed that the Israelis used military force against the Pakistani nuclear program when it was in formation. So there's even more variation um, across uh, that particular or within that particular alternative explanation. And we kind of need to flip the explanation on its head um, from how the, the literature sort of thinks about it. Um, I'll give you one other structural explanation that I explore, um, and then I'll tell you about a few others. Um, the, there is this notion, right? And I think this sort of just makes sense to us as, as humans beyond just as political scientists, um, that maybe countries attack in easy cases, right? If it's an easy military mission, you just, you deal with the problem militarily. And if it's too hard, then that's not when we're going to observe military force, right? So you use force when it's easy to do so and not otherwise. And that's like intuitively appealing, right? That, that kind of an explanation. But in fact, historically, we have a variety of instances where leaders either got very close to ordering the military intervention or actually used military force as a counterproliferation strategy when the expectations for the consequences of that action were nothing short of dire. So for example, um, Menachem Begin in 1981 orders the strike on the Osirak Iraqi nuclear reactor, um, despite the fact that his military and intelligence apparatus is telling him, you're gonna lose your entire Air Force fleet that you're sending, you're gonna lose all of the pilots who are gonna get shot down or killed in some way, and you're probably going to catalyze a major war when the Iraqis like come in retaliation, like territorially try an onslaught um, uh, uh, into Israel. And Begin knew all of that and ordered the attack anyway, because he was so concerned about the potential future of an Iraq armed with nuclear weapons. President Clinton in the 1990s facing a, a similar situation perhaps um, with the North Korean nuclear threat, um, you know, had all kinds of terrible uh, uh, casualty estimates, cost figures for what a war on the per Korean peninsula would look like after a strike on the North Korean 
um, nuclear infrastructure, uh, you know, what that would portend. And he nearly ordered the intervention, but for the 11th hour sort of work of President Jimmy Carter, who, you know, got us to what would eventually be the agreed framework. So in those cases and others, we've got evidence to sort of call into question that notion that you only attack in the easy cases. Let me tell you um, just one, one quick thing outside of the structural um, uh, context. And I think, you know, a lot of people, their instinct about what might be a plausible explanation for um, the types of uh, policy decisions that I'm explaining in this book, you know, you might think it's it's about the bureaucracy, right? It's about the cabinet or it's about the interagency process in the U.S. context, something about the bureaucracy, either pulling and hauling to think about our bureaucratic politics um, language might be what drives the, the uh, options that are pursued or not. Um, or something about, you know, especially gifted cabinet members, right, who are actually driving the process. And it's not it's not the leaders per se, but, you know, something about the bureaucracy or the apparatus um, that the leader sits atop. Um, and I show, uh, especially in the China case, where it's really important um, um, to address this potential alternative, but elsewhere in the book also, how we should call into question the bureaucratic politics alternative. And um, briefly, I would mention that um, there's really something interesting about the China case, right, in that we know President Johnson comes in or Johnson becomes President Johnson um, in the aftermath of the um, Kennedy assassination. And we might have thought, right, that the change in behavior, the fact that Kennedy was seriously considering a military option against the Chinese nuclear program. And then Johnson, you know, shows no serious consideration um, of, of, of that possible military in intervention. Maybe it's something about the people who inhabit the Johnson administration, right? Like the newly ushered in Johnson administration, as opposed to those who had populated the Kennedy administration. But what's interesting is that part of what Johnson does when he comes into office after the assassination, you know, he's really focused on keeping continuity from the Kennedy administration to his new administration. And he keeps the identical cabinet from the Kennedy period to this part of the Johnson administration and to a man. Right. And it, I'm sorry, it is man in this uh, in this era that we're talking about, but literally the identical cabinet. And yet, despite. Uh, that identical cabinet, we see significant change in the policy that the Johnson administration will pursue or not um, once they call into they come into office. So that tells us it's not just the cabinet doing the work. We got to focus elsewhere. And again, we come back to the role of the leaders. It's super. This is so great, Rachel. I mean, oh, sorry, Hannah. Wait, is it your turn? I know you want to come in with the next question, but I did want to ask a tiny follow up just because sure. you talked about China. And I think mm -hmm. our listeners would be really interested in hearing why it is that there hasn't been a, a counterproliferation strike against Iran, given the concern that we see with the Iranian program today. Is it that, you know, for the longest time, individual leaders who were perhaps contemplating the use of force against Iran didn't see the program as such a threat at that point in time? And, the, the you know, the concern has, has, has risen mostly in, in recent years? Or what's your explanation here? So I think the first thing I would say is this story is not finished yet. Um, and I think this is one of the, you know, really important elements of the nuclear landscape currently that we need to be paying attention to. 
Um, and it is not a foregone conclusion that uh, we will or we won't see the use of military force in the Iranian um, um, context. Um, and especially as they have been advancing their centrifuge capacity, enriching uranium up to, we, what are we, 85, almost 90% uh, in today. Um, you know, they're making significant strides, really limiting, shrinking basically to nothing, uh, their breakout uh, potential, um, you know, that's making other folks in the international community nervous. And yet, right, according to the American intelligence, the Israeli intelligence, um, they have not made the decision, the Iranians have not made the decision to uh, to weaponize. So, um, you know, it's a little bit uh, ambiguous where this case is heading. Um, but I think it is uh, too soon to tell whether or not we um, could be heading in the direction of the use of force. Um, and so that means that we need to pay attention to who's in office in the relevant countries right now. Um, right. Bibi Netanyahu, who we are still talking about, um, uh, has some real challenges domestically um, that might cause him to return to a focus on the Iranian nuclear threat. And Bibi has been quite vocal um, throughout his very long uh, political tenure as prime minister and otherwise about the existential threat that the Iranian um, nuclear capability um, ha uh, poses to, to Israel and the others. And yet there are some reasons to think that he might um, be a lot of talk and, and less action, especially um, because you know there are other things moving in this space, like the role of the Russians, for example, um, in potentially protecting uh, the Iranians to a certain degree. And of course, you know, one of the things that makes the Iran case really interesting is that it's a triad as opposed to just a dyad. So, you know, in earlier elements of the Iran uh, story, where, for example, the Israelis might have thought about using military force to forestall the nuclear weapons acquisition things like the Iran nuclear deal um, were orchestrated in order, you know, to do many things. But one of the things the, that deal was meant to do was to um, prevent or postpone the or, uh, Israeli uh, use of military force um, against Iran. So um, bottom line, stay tuned. Well, I was so eager to jump in in the previous question, but I'm actually really glad that Hannah um, took that little divergence because it leads perfectly into what I want to ask you about, which is, you know, your book is looking at counterproliferation strikes, but the central finding, which is that you know what leaders believe before they enter office shapes and influences their behavior once they're there. I mean, it seems to me like that has really far reaching implications for other areas of policymaking. So we were just talking about other areas of nuclear decision-making, but I'm thinking here more broadly about you know, policymaking sort of writ large. So if you could, you know, wave a magic wand, have any set of archival information that you wanted or any data set that you wanted that would allow you to test your findings against other aspects of kind of nuclear decision-making broadly. I'm curious to know, like, what would those be? Would they be decisions about nuclear use, um, decisions about whether to acquire nuclear weapons, whether to join treaties? Like, what would you want to explore um, and test your findings against? Sure, sure, sure. So, um, you know, it, this is a really fascinating space to be inhabiting at the moment because there's so many different elements of of work both on the leaders front but also so many important nuclear questions that we are still um exploring and need need good answers to um so i think i think i would answer your question two ways um both 
slightly expanding my uh, model, strictly speaking. So the first, um, you know, I'm really interested in this question of nuclear learning and what people learn under what conditions, because we have a variety of conflicting ideas um, right on the one hand that shocks can cause belief change, but also that shocks could cause belief assimilation, right? You harden your beliefs. And we don't necessarily have a great understanding of the conditions under which one thing or the other will happen. Similarly, um, and I know you've talked to Nick Miller in a previous episode, so this, this came up, um, you know, we don't have great understandings of why uh, different people in the same country learn different things from different episodes in the nuclear context or otherwise. Um, you know, we could use a better understanding of um, not uh, learning uh, from a particular environment in, in an abstract sense, but, you know, how leaders learn, say, from previous leaders about their nuclear experiences in terms of you know, what impact that might uh, have on, say, the use of nuclear weapons, whether it's from a coercive element or a deployment perspective. Like, what do you learn from what the previous person did that you do similarly or different, uh, differently? So um, I think there's a variety of questions in this, I will just call it learning, nuclear learning space. Um, and, and of course, you know, there's a lot happening in the Ukraine context specifically um, that could give us important um, data uh, to continue pursuing, um, you know, fruitful research questions in this avenue. The other thing I would say um, is that, you know, in this book, I'm looking at uh, executive, national executives, presidents and prime ministers, um, but I'm amenable to the fact that other leaders more broadly conceived can be consequential in nuclear matters. Um, so for example, um, with uh, a couple of colleagues, I have a, an arms control project that's looking at individuals, be they leaders, uh, heads of state, head, um, foreign ministers, lead negotiators, right? And their personal characteristics or some of their individual experiences, and also relationally, like me as a head negotiator from one country, you as the head negotiator from another country, you know, relationally, are there characteristics that we might have in common um, that might lead to negotiation success? So, you know, I think there's a number of questions about the role of people, if we can broaden it out a little bit from leaders, um, to think about the, the role that leaders, that people broadly may play um, in a variety of, of uh, areas of consequence um, that we're concerned with in the nuclear realm. Rachel, can we just build on this last point? And I'd like to hear you reflect a little on how your research can be directly useful for policy. I mean, you said earlier, you know, with the Iran case, we have to stay alert and we should be paying attention to those who are in office at the moment. Uh, such as Bibi Netanyahu. So is the sort of utility of this for policy mostly about uh, being able to anticipate potential counterproliferation strikes because we we are aware of who's in office and what they might do? Or is it this, this point that you just made about understanding personalities sort of more broadly and then understanding what could be co conducive to negotiation? I mean, can you just talk a little bit sort of to, to the policy implications here? Sure, sure, sure. So, so this is a really 
you know, personally consequential question in the sense that I spend a lot of my time formally and informally, you know, thinking about ways to bridge the gap, right? I'm involved with the Bridging the Gap initiative and, and both as a scholar, uh, you know, as a person, I'm in inclined towards thinking that there's a role for academics to play in contributing to the policy process. And I'm inclined towards policy relevant questions as this book uh, demonstrates. Um, that said, I take a very broad view of how one can contribute uh, to the policy process or the policy landscape. Um, and I think, Hannah, you know, you noted an uh, obvious um, and maybe most important um, implication from this book is that, you know, if we want to know who might be likely to use preventive military force as a counterproliferation strategy um, in some future scenario, we should pay attention to the leaders atop the relevant states and see what their pre-presidential views, pre-executive views, suggest for how they are likely to behave in executive office facing some particular adversary. Um, so that's the, sort of the immediate takeaway from this book. More broadly, more liberally, you know, I think there's an argument in here for knowing our history, right? Um, yes, I'm looking at Cold War cases going back to John F. Kennedy and LBJ, right? Uh, in the in the 1960s. But as our conversation today demonstrates, you know, this is of relevance for the contemporary environment, right? And it is uh, not news that we do a particularly poor job, especially here in the United States, um, on history education and, and making sure that, you know, our youth and our population um, knows history, not because it's perfectly comparable to what's happening now, um, but because there are interesting things to know and, and signposts that might be relevant um, in today's age or tomorrow. Um, I also think that there's a variety of different ways that we can um, contribute to the policy process as academics, right? I have no illusion that any policymaker is going to be picking up this book uh, and doing anything with it or reading any journal article that I might have written or ever write in the future. Um, but one of the benefits of living in this day and age is that there are a variety of outlets, um, whether they're short form policy pieces, podcasts such as this one, right, that are able to communicate to a very broad audience of current policymakers, but also future policymakers. Um, and I think that's a really important way that academics can contribute to the civic conversation and the policymaking process um, more broadly. And that means that, you know, us as citizens, right, in whatever country can pay attention to these issues, our leaders, our future leaders, right, because they're leaving behind a paper trail um, that we can explore. And we can think about every time we have the opportunity and the privilege to go into the voting booth, right? These people are telling us stuff about how they might be as leaders one day. Um, and I think it is our civic obligation, uh, especially if we have the privilege of living in a democracy to take advantage of that information and use it. Last thing I will say, because this has turned into a long answer, um, in the classroom, right? That is a way that we can have policy relevance. Right. You know, even though I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, if you poll my students in U.S. foreign policy, my undergrads, at least half the room is going to raise their hand and say, I want to be in the foreign service or I want to be, you know, contributing to the policymaking process one day in London or Brussels or Washington or what have you. Um, and so we have all day, every day in the classroom, the ability to engage with uh 
future policymakers or future members of the policymaking community broadly conceived and getting in the classroom and uh, encouraging people to read and think and be critical consumers on these really important topics um, can contribute to the policymaking process um, over the very long run. Rachel, thank you so much. I feel like that is such a perfect note to end this conversation on, especially given that you know we're at an academic institution, you're at an academic institution. I really appreciate you bringing home the ways in which our research can sort of touch different stakeholders and thinking about who those stakeholders are more broadly. So thank you both for that response and for this question more generally and our conversation. Um, I found it to be fascinating and I wanna thank you again for making the time and being our guest. It has been wonderful to join you and thank you so much for having me.